journey through the corridors of the Palace of Glittering Delights. This week we are completing our leap through time as we journey back and discuss the final three seasons of Quantum Leap, as well as some of the favourite episodes of the show. I am joined on this journey by Dr. Bill Robinson and Mighty Mike Bailey. Uh, Season three kicked off with another one of my top five, and probably a lot of people's. This one's not an out-of-left-field choice. Yeah, it's it's normally on everybody's list of best ones. Uh, the Leap Home, again written by Bellasario, Sam leaps into his own body, aged sixteen years of age, and basically has to fix various bits of his family. His older brother was killed in Vietnam. His dad will die of a heart attack. His sister will marry an abusive husband. It is the most unfortunate family ever. Yeah, I watch this every Thanksgiving since it takes place at Thanksgiving. So Yeah, and it's got a lovely scene where he, he convinces his, his sister of what's going on by singing Imagine to her two years before it will be written. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just a really sweet episode. And all the way through it, he's not enjoying himself. And he's focusing on, I've got to fix this. I've got to, I've got to get my dad to eat more healthily. And I've got to stop Katie from marrying this asshole. And if I can just stop Tommy from going to Vietnam, I can keep him alive. And Al's like, Sam, you're missing the point. You're getting another day with yeah. your family. Yeah, it was, it, it was one of the... Yeah, it was one of those things where it's just like you're you're getting this is your your shore leave basically. You know, everybody wants that one moment with their family again. And Scott Bakula does a great double uh, is a double threat in this as playing his own father, mm. and really carries that off well. His mother is played by a woman that I recognize from an episode of Law and Order, where she is in a, a, a pro life fanatic. So it's kind of interesting seeing her as the the mother role in this. Um. No knows Pruitt, Sam's basketball adversary in this episode, who takes a cheap shot at Sam. Uh, dumbest guy ever for picking on the brother of a Navy SEAL. <laughs> I mean, seriously, think this one through, guy. I mean, <laughs> and that does tie into another one of Belisario's stock characters. Yes. Every one of his shows has a Vietnam veteran in, and nine times out of ten, they were in the Navy. Thomas Magnum was in the Navy. Um, Stringfellow Hawk's brother was in the Navy and a Vietnam veteran. In JAG, David James Elliott's character's dad was a Vietnam veteran who was in the Navy. And here we have Al, who is a Vietnam veteran and in the Navy. And his brother, who's a Navy SEAL, as was Thomas Magnum in Vietnam. So again, Bellasario bringing his, his favorite topics to and then, birth. And then there's NCIS, which is all and about then the Navy. Which is, yeah, which is Navy intelligence. So, Even though he yeah. wasn't involved beyond a certain season, uh, yeah, it was. It's 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 pretty obvious that 
if, if there is anything a, a Belisario production will be, it will be pro-military and not in a flag-waving, jingoistic sort of way. No, no, he, Which, he is, he is, he's, there are numerous episodes of, of NCIS that I've, I don't watch that as regularly, but ones that I've seen, and certainly of Magnum, where he will openly question mm-hmm. the purpose of what they were doing. It, it seems to be that his flashpoint for American history is Nam. And it doesn't seem that he's he's pro or against. He's he seems very interested in analysing what happened there, why it happened there, were you right to be there, and his characters question that. But then it's never negative either, which is what I like about it. Magnum was proud of being an Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. He was proud that he served his country. Same with Al in this show. But both of them are not blind to the fact that maybe it wasn't exactly what we thought it should be. Maybe we were lied to. I don't know, but we did our job. Yeah. And you it's know. like you say, it's never a rara. We're wonderful, but at the same time, it's not negative. And I like that balance. I like that he's proud of what he did. He's proud that he served his country. But looking back, he recognizes, you know, maybe it wasn't what it should have been. Well, that carries on into the second part of the leap home where, where Scott, where Sam leaps into one of the men in his older brother's unit. Hmm. Uh, and uh, again, if you want to look at guest stars, future, uh, Wayne's world star, Tia Carreri is in this episode and past, yeah, uh, past a team guest star. Don't forget that. Oh, sorry. She was in the only episode of the A team where someone was shot and killed on screen. And Patrick Warburton, uh, who would go on to be on the Seinfeld. But if you watch family guy, you hear him as Joe, mm-hmm. uh, is um, in, very young in this episode. Good lord. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh it may have been one of his first things. Is the the plot of the episode is Sam is now in Tommy's platoon and he changes history. He saves his brother's life, but at the expense of the photographer who is following them around, who was played by Andrea Thompson, who went on to be in Babylon Five. But that also changed history because she caught a picture of Al yes. as a POW, which that ending it's like it was like a sucker punch ending, really, because she dies and you're upset about that. But then you get that and it's just like, oh, by the way, <laughs> it's like, you, well, don't these, doesn't that picture prove he's still alive? Yes. And that's how they rescue him or something. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. And, Al, and Sam says to him, well, how did you survive being a POW? And Al says, because I, I was never a prisoner in here and points to his head. And that was that was another thing that. Uh, uh, Dean Stockwell was so, I mean, he, he's, he, his acting career goes back to like the forties. So he, you know, he, he had a pretty extensive, <laughs> his IMDB reads like war and peace, but you know, it, it, it was, it was all, he was a very physical actor, which is hard to pull off sometimes, I think, but mm. you know, but him pointing to his head like that, that's all you needed to know. Yeah. You know? That's it. Uh, I, I've covered my one favorite from season three. So if Bill, if you want to tell yours and then Michael, you go okay. for it. I had picked, uh, from season three shock theater. Oh yeah. That's a good one. And that is where, uh, Sam leaps in and he leaps in and he figures out rather quickly that he is in a insane asylum or some <laughs> derivative thereof. And before, uh, and there's a rather perturbed nurse's assistant, who decides that, or he interpreted the, the doctor's instructions that, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give him some shock treatment. 
he ramps it up all the way and just zaps the bejesus out of him. And unfortunately, this has a side effect, you know, with his already Swiss cheese brain. What ends up happening through the episode is that he keeps getting pieces of other people he's leaped into that <laughs> since he's already in an insane asylum makes him even even more crazier. Now, his character that actually checked himself in to begin with, he was kind of stressed out. He wanted to just get 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 away. And now he seems to have just gone off the deep end. And, you know, it's kind of got the one flew over to cuckoo's nest feel to it but the main nurse character is not really the one like the nurse ratchet character she's a little bit more sympathetic and it's mm-hmm. the the doctor and the orderly that are more the evil guys on this one so what's happening is because of the shock treatment and Sam's brain is all messed up is that Al is starting to fade out and they can't sync up with him and they figure out that he needs to get another shock equal to the one that he had to begin with to try to basically reboot and reset everything. And at the end, he's strapped back down to get another shock treatment, and he's he's in the persona, actually, of Jimmy that we had talked about that I had said in the other one. You know, and he's like, you know, shock, give me the shock. And it's so, it's just really, it's, it's a sad, you know, the end of it is just really just heart, heart-wrenching. And um, they end up, while the doctor and the orderly are arguing because the orderly has found out that he had given him the shock treatment originally against the doctor's orders, uh, the nurse goes over and she sets him up and she shocks him. But at the same time, there's a bolt of lightning that hits. And when that happens, that has you, you see the lightning jump out of Sam and hit Al as well. And that leads into some stuff that happens in next season. And that's a very good season finale. Yeah. Now, my backup, uh, which I'll just mention kind of quickly, was um, Future Boy, which is yes. where the basis comes from for the whole Quantum Leap series or or <laughs> or, or uh, Sam Beckett's whole theory on time travel comes from his boyhood hero. I'm, I'm blanking out. I'm sorry. What is the name of his hero? I can't. It's Captain something. Captain Galaxy. Captain Galaxy. And it was it, he had the whole you know your life is a ball of string, and if you pull it all together, and that's where Sam had got the whole idea of time travel was from Captain Galaxy. Yeah, he reads he reads that letter at the end of the episode uh, before he goes off on a very special mission from little Sammy Beckett, mm-hmm. which just makes me laugh. Yeah, and what's going on behind the scenes there is that he has to prevent. Um, Mo Stein from from being committed because of his wild theories about time travel, you know. So basically, the whole thing was for him to have that letter read on the air, so that he would be able to, you know, the whole wrapping around on himself. And it's just, it's just, a, it, it's another good good episode in a long string of good episodes, which the whole series is. And I guess I'm sounding repetitive as little as I've been able to be on tonight. Yeah, but season I think season three and four is where the show really hit its stride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There aren't many, if any, bad ones in series three. It's it's a consistently enjoyable series. I mean, my other other ones that I would have picked if we'd we'd limited it a bit more. I like Black and White on Fire a great deal. I think is an exceptionally powerful What's Riot's episode. I think that's uh, really good. Greg Elomo's Elomo 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 Elomo's in it. It would obviously be Gul Ducat. 
Oh, yeah. Space Nine, but has been in everything. Six Million Dollar Man, Erwolf, Mag. He was in the lot. If it, if it was a TV show in the 70s and 80s, he was in it. He Yes, he was the bad um, guy. I also like Eight and a Half Months. Yeah, he was the bad guy in everything. I like Eight and a Half Months where Sam's pregnant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, my, uh, my two choices are uh, my, my favorite is Rebel Without a Clue. Because uh, again, if you're gonna if you're gonna take the drinking game of drink whenever you see something from the opening credits, uh, this has a spin kick in it that's always in the opening credits. <laughs> one of the things that I really think is funny about this episode is looking back at the cast list, and this is one of the ones that isn't on Netflix. So screw you, Netflix. <laughs> um, Diedrich Bader. Diedrich Bader plays the bad guy in this, and he's like really effective as it. Uh, he also has one of the most memorable lines for me for some reason from this series. Oh, hey, knows a little Taekwondo. <laughs> <laughs> but Jack Kerouac's in it and there's not one but two fight scenes at the end. But it's also just an enjoyable episode. You got a little bit of the heartstrings pulling of the the guy that owns the diner. His son died in Korea but he doesn't know that yet and going through all that and just basically it's it's Rebel without, you know, Diedrich Bader is the Marlon Brando character. But I also like Nuclear Family, uh, mainly because one of the great his- things about the series, as we've discussed, is that it sometimes deals with uh, historical events. And this is the episode that deals with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and I'm kind of fascinated by that whole event anyways. Uh, 13 Days is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, so just watching this th- this family kind of play out the uh, the paranoia that happened at that time, and Sam having to prevent the death of somebody that uh, when things kind of went really crazy, it's just it's just one of my favorite episodes of the season. Yeah, I like that one. Timothy Carhart's in that one. Uh, he's another one of them. You will recognize his face. Yeah, I was about to say he's got another one of those. I know that guy. There's another guy. Is it uh, Kurt Fuller? The other guy that's yes, Kurt Fuller, who yep. plays the jerk in uh, Ghostbusters Two, amongst other things. Mm. <laughs> he is the William Atherton of uh, Ghostbusters Two. <laughs> of Ghostbusters Two, yeah. Oh, I, I quite like Glitter Rock as well. I think that one's just fun. Hermits and Peter Nooney's in it. Something tells me something. Oh, you know, we didn't mention that Captain Galaxy is Richard Hurd. Yes, yes. Who is, uh, John on yep. B. And he was TJ Hooker's boss. Uh, he was also the vice president in the pilot for The Greatest American Hero. Was he? Oh, he yes. got around a lot in the 80s, didn't he? Yeah, he's. It, I really like looking at those guys' IMDb's because. Like, some people have, like, the IMDb where they were on this show for this many seasons, and they were on this show for this many seasons. And then you have the day players that they were like, I was on everything once. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or if they were lucky more than once. But I, I, you know, we were talking before that season three and season four, you know, I I, I can't really pick. Because when you get into season four, you have, I mean, right away you have one of my favorite episodes ever. uh, Mm. the The Leap Back. Yeah. Well, I think season four is generally where the, the season starts to get a little bit darker. Oh, yeah. Subject matter. And it's season four where they start taking some, some real chances with the storytelling and with the leaps. Not quite as many as they will take in season five, 
but season four certainly has a, a number of, of quite dark shows amidst the usual light and frothy stuff that people seem to remember Quantum Leap for. As Bill had said in season uh, the season three closer, uh, lightning hit both Sam and Al, and it switched them. So when they wake up, they're okay, but Sam is the hologram, and Al is the person in the... Uh, that has leaped, which is why it takes place on June 15th, 1945. Cause now we're dealing with Al's lifespan and not Sam's. Uh, this is a significant episode on a number of fronts. One, I think it's, it's not the strongest of season openers. Cause I really think a leap home holds that. But in terms of things for this series that are important, you, you can't really discount this one. Cause we see, Basically, where Al goes, we see Mission Control. We find out Ziggy's a woman. We see Gushy again. We see the woman that Al is always talking about. We see Sam's wife, who he spends a lot of time the episode having sex with. Um, <laughs> and it's been a long time. You deal with the fact that Sam now kind of feels guilty about all of the women he's been making out with or sleeping with. Mm. But... As the episode progressive, he remembers less and less of his leaps. So, and then you get to you get to see uh, Al kicking a little ass with a stunt double. I'm sorry, that spin kick at the beginning was not Dean Stockwell uh, <laughs> no, at all. No, he's he's not quite as nimble as Scott Bakula. Um, you have some great guest stars in this one. Who pl- Amanda Wiss plays the girl that Al, the guy Al leaps into, is his girlfriend. She was in Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and she was also in Better Off Dead, uh, and she was on Highlander for a little while, which was really strange. But just, I just can't, I, I can't even express vocally how much this episode means to me. This was the first season intro that I watched when it happened, and I was excited. It also has one of my favorite musical cues of the entire series. And I know that seems kind of weird because the music of this series was mostly the music of, you know, the time period that Sam has leapt into, but that score when Sam is, is, is trying to leap into Al so he can save him. I would rewind the tape and listen to it over and over and over again. I just, I just absolutely love this episode. I like this one because of the role reversal. I love Bakula's just giddy schoolboy excitement at being a hologram and Al's just despondency at the fact that, wait a minute, I'm stuck here? And it, the pair of them just play it magnificently. And Bakula as Beckett realising as his memory starts coming back to it, wait a minute, I'm married. And he just runs off. Well, yeah, yeah but first, first he has to get the, he has to get the door open. Yes, because it's keyed to Al's brainwave, isn't it? So yeah. obviously they've seen uh, Back, Back to, to the, the Future, future too. <laughs> Here, Sorry. As, soon, as soon as I put this letter in, door opens. Yeah. And it's it's magnificent. Again, it's another one of those that is playing with the time travel aspects of the show, which on the one hand, I'm glad they didn't do a lot of, because when they did it, it made it special. Yes. But on the other, it was always a joy when it did happen. Well, to, to say about it, it is, it's an excellent episode. It builds upon the mythology. It Establishing that Sam was married will have repercussions for the series down the road. There is a key episode that centers around the fact that Sam has to bed a woman. And mm-hmm. the fan base were not pleased about that, that Sam was, that they now knew Sam was married and he still had to do this. And the defense was Sam doesn't know he's married, but it it, it annoyed and Al a lot of people. Not, and Al is told not to tell it. 
by yeah, his Ali, wife. Ali's DA's wife is, if he knows I'm here, it will hinder what he has to do. So you cannot tell him. Is that, is that, well, never mind. I, I think we're going to cover that. I think that's in one of the other ones you chose. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My pick from season four was episode five, which was raped, which is, yes, it's another issue heavy episode, but from the stuff that, uh, we deal with personally we we do as a family deal with certain elements that we don't want to go into here but this episode is is quite personal because of of stuff that my wife has to deal with and there's it's very hard for a woman to prove she's been raped in a court of law and this episode deals with it magnificently where sam has to testify and there's a beautiful scene where al takes the victim of rape into the chamber so she can give her testimony and sam is just parroting her words and slowly the director mm-hmm. bats bacula out of the scene and brings the actress playing the woman into it cheryl Pollack, i think is her name and she is giving her testimony and it's just a really powerful moment in an exceptionally powerful episode that really does put sam in somebody else's shoes literally as the point of the show was but makes him realize that maybe he has certain advantages just because of his gender and it, it's it's one of those interesting episodes that it, it 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 takes on its subject matter full stop and you know she, they testify and in the end the guy's found not guilty so yeah. you you think okay this was for for her to stand up for herself. No, apparently, really, the point of this was for Sam to beat the shit out of this guy, which he does <laughs> rather handily at the end of the episode. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not on the fence with this. I think it's one of the few times I've made a statement that could even be vaguely considered political. But if you think that violence towards women or children is okay, stop listening defriend me i don't want to know you (laughs) i have zero tolerance for that largely because of of personal things that we don't want to get into but i you know i'm not somebody who thinks violence is the answer to problems but it is the answer to certain problems and he needed a kick in yeah yeah as as you said i think earlier in the episode sometimes you just need a good kick in yeah and it's you can argue that in real life that solves nothing but this isn't real life. It's a dramatic hour of television. Yeah. To be fair, the scene with which it happens is probably some of the worst writing of the series because it's it's it goes from this like dramatic, like we're gonna three dimensional thing to the guy just showing up and being a scumbag, mm. and and but at the same time, it, it's it, it's kind of like, it's kind of what you wanted to see. So <laughs> it plays on several levels, basically. Yeah, it, it gives you that cathartic feeling that you needed after a very heavy episode i just i just think it's it's an issue show that doesn't feel like an issue show yeah. because it's not couching the issue in other things it it deals with it head on and if the price for that is i i we get an ending where he gets the crack kicked out of him rather simplistically then fine because he needed a kick it let's be honest he deserved it mm-hmm. what about you bill that was a heavy one <laughs> Well, Bill, take us to a much much lighter season four episode. Yes, we 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 actually the very next 
episode is called The Wrong Stuff. And this is where Sam, uh, we talked about earlier on, this is where Sam leaps into a monkey that's in the Chimpanot program. And unfortunately, <laughs> Sam can't cut it as a monkey because he's, he's trying to pass all, all the tests through it. And Al's trying to find out what's going on. And basically, he says that his, his chimp seems to disappear but then he finds out that uh, he he's going to die of massive head trauma. And what's been going on behind the scenes is that another doctor has come in from, from the one that's been training uh, uh, Bobo, which is Sam, and uh, the other female ape, which I can't remember her name, but she's rather – uh, the, the, the the romantic interest. He, yes, she's the she's the amorous <laughs> chimp. She's the romantic interest with uh, for for Sam this this episode and is all over him. And uh, basically, he has to save himself and her uh, because they're going to be used in experiments for uh, helmets, to where they're basically going to slam like a five thousand pound. Uh, you know, press is going to slam into the side of his head and it's going to kill him because they're testing the effectiveness of the helmet. But he's able to, uh, uh, Al's able to snap him out of it and he gets out. And in a very nice scene, he, you know, the monkey's got a gun. Nobody move. (laughs) (laughs) So he's able to break out and, um, actually ends up saving the life of the the head doctor that was doing the experiments and looks into the chimp's eyes or 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 sam's eyes and has a change of heart and then um just before they uh they leap out the other female ape goes over and grabs a gun and shoots uh, one of the guards the <laughs> guards that was gonna round them up again and shoots him in the butt and uh knocks him out <laughs> And uh, as uh, Sam gets a smooch from the AP, uh, from his uh, new new love of his life, he uh, he zo- he leaps out and on to the next episode. So it was a nice lighthearted one compared to some of the other things going on this season. Although it was lighthearted, but you know they were gonna you know it, it talks about animal testing and possible cruelties there, and, and you know do you lose your humanity in the progression of science to to push things forward? You know, I think is one of the underlying things that was talked about in it. I think it's it's lighter in comparison to the two episodes that surround it. Yeah. Because it's followed by one of the darkest shows of the season. Oh, God, yes. Which is Dreams, which was on my shortlist. Sam's um, a lieutenant oh, yeah. police officer in the police force investigating a gruesome serial killing. And it's it's he, he's just disorientated through the, the entire show. And it's another Deborah Pratt script, and it's really disorientating for the viewer, and it's dark and quite grim. This would fit on TV today. Mm. Caroline Goodall was in the wrong stuff, and I know her mainly from being Peter Pan's wife in Hook. Mm. Oh, that's that's yeah. See, Michael, your your next episode from this season is the final episode of the season. So yeah. let's just do a brief overview of any other ones before you jump into that one. I don't, I don't think there was a poor one this year. Uh, I like Roberto where he's, he's the, the TV talk show host. Yeah, basically. I like the one where he's in the, the Ronettes by any other name. Um, I like running for honor because I felt that dealt with gays in society, in that, um, in Colin college campus being a a cadet. That's like, that was the whole, 
that was the whole don't ask, don't tell era, wasn't it, for you guys? Yeah, but and it this was dealt such with it in a beautiful way. Yeah, but it, the ending makes that one where Al says something like, I may, I may get this around the wrong way around, but one of them, or Al says, well, we never did find out if he was gay or not. And Sam or Al says, does it matter? And he leaps. Yeah. And that, to me, makes the episode worthwhile. It doesn't matter. A Single Drop of Rain is one of my favorites from this season as well, uh, mainly because Sam's pretty awesome as the uh, rabble-rouser who's trying to sell basically snake oil. Uh, Music-wise, again, uh, this this is one of the few episodes that actually had its musical cues put on the soundtrack. Uh, so I don't know if I like the music because it was on the soundtrack and I listened to it a thousand times, or if I like the music from the episode. So it's kind of a it's kind of a weird uh, thing there. The um, the Temptation Eyes episode where he's uh, uh, protecting a psychic from a serial killer that was a creepy one too. Mm. Uh, and I and I think I liked it because of that, uh, just because it was just when it, when it got one of the one of the other great things about the show on the large list that we have compiled over the the, the, the past five hours is um, <laughs> uh, and I don't say that in a bad way because I could talk about Quantum Leap all night and we're doing it so there you go uh, is that they could do different genres within the episodes. So you have like, you know, the, the temptation eyes, which is kind of a wonderful leap uh, where they have the late, great Charles rocket, who was in one oh. of the greatest episodes of uh, moonlighting ever. Yeah. He was Richie Addison, David's brother, <laughs> the mall, the mall, mall has it all, <laughs> which my mother would say every time we would go to the mall. He was also on uh, Wings. Uh, I, my wife's been doing a. Uh, she's been rewatching the entire series of Wings, and I happen to come in. And I'm like, hey, that's Charles Rocket. He killed himself. So is it really weird <laughs> watching Superman, Monk, and the Sandman on the show? <laughs> yes, because I came to my son and said, here, I got to show you something, because he was watching Wings with my wife as well. I said, here, come with me, boy. Let me let me learn you something. <laughs> let me educate you. So I play a clip of Superman, the animated series, and I'm like, "Who's that?" He's like, "That's Superman." I'm like, "Listen to his voice." So I play it back again. Who's that? He's like, "That's that's Joe." I'm like, "Yeah, isn't that cool?" <laughs> He's like, "Wow!" I'm like, "Awesome, huh?" So, yep, <sighs> I've taught my son something. <laughs> um, the curse of Tahotep, while not the greatest of episodes, oh, is kind of fun. On it's a wonderful it. leap, though. Wasn't that the one where Al pretends to be a ghost? Yes. Okay. Sorry. No, you're mixing up your Christmas episode. <laughs> I oh, am, I am, I'm aren't I? Yeah, you're thinking of the second season Christmas episode. Um, oh. just let me flick a little miracle. I, I. I, it's the one with Charles Rocket in, and, and yeah, and Bill is right. This this season's Christmas episode is it's a wonderful leap where he pretends to be a ghost, because the guardian angel played by Liz Torres from Gilmore Girls can see Al. Okay. So we're we're, we're mixing up our Christmas episodes. Though. We're Swiss cheesing. Yes, <laughs> which does happen. Oh, which it, takes us. Oh, go on. Sorry. Oh. Ghost Ship. I just wanted to make a quick note. Ghost Ship had Carla 
Guigino. Oh man. Oof. I, I, oh young. man. Ooh. Much better casting for um oh the out of sight private detective than Jennifer Lopez in um Cisco. Carol Karen Cisco. Mm-hmm. Well, she's better casting in most cases. Uh stand up, by the way, I just want to mention it real quick, has Bob Saget as a violent comic, which was kind of funny to see at the time. Also has Amy Yazbek, who was on Wings. Wings. So I can bring it back to that. Who's also did... the wife of John Ritter. Ritter. Yeah. She was wasn't she also didn't she take Daryl Hannah's place as the mermaid in Splash? Hmm. In Splash Two? Was I that never Amy saw Splash Two? Splash Two, Electric Boogaloo, bad, bad, <laughs> bad on the mermaids. Oh, Look, Amy Asbeck is directly responsible for me marrying my wife, and that's because there was an episode of Werewolf where she played a uh, witch, and that's when I start getting the idea that witches were hot, uh, <laughs> and then I married my wife. So there you go. So between that and uh, Diana Rigg and the Worst Witch, yeah, you can kind of there's like a there's no freaking line. So. <laughs> There's a reason that you are. <laughs> so, the last episode of the season. Take it away, Michael. Sam leaps into Al. Isn't that this episode? Yes. Yes, I'm right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Al Bingo Cavalavici. Why can't I say that? Charles Rocket's in this one again. Um, yep. and, and basically... And Terry the, Farrell. The, mm. Yep. Ooh, Terry Farrell was in this one, wasn't she? Uh, and the character called Commander Riker. Yeah, <laughs> that makes me smile. Um, the hook to this episode is that Al is on trial, basically, and is executed. And there's a new Leaper played by uh, the uh, by the Mad Hatter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roddy McDowell oh, or Bookworm, um, if you want to. Edward St. John the Fifth, or V, or Fit, or ah, I can't remember. Obviously, being Stringfellow Park's brother's name, going back to Bellasario, reusing names. Mm. Uh, it was cool, mainly. One, because it had the personal connection of him being Al. So, uh, and that's where, this is where I learned that bathrooms in the Navy are the head. Mm. Uh, I, I, that's that's where I was taught that. But also, I really liked Roddy McDowell in the short bit of the episode he was in. But then again, I like Roddy McDowell in everything I've ever seen or heard him in. So yeah, that's not Rod, a surprise. Roddy McDowell has never been bad. Yeah. This wasn't an era where you necessarily had like the big season finale leading into the next season. Uh, that was a rarity, as a matter of fact. And you know, it's it's why the best of both worlds was such a special episode. Of I was just gonna just gonna reference that because that was one of the first times I remember a big yeah. cl- cliffhanger season ending. Um. So Quantum Leap had had kind of done it the previous season. And they kind of did it the season before where something kind of weird happens and, and you're like, oh boy. This one, though, it worked on two levels. One, it was a good season finale because it was personal to the to the main characters. So instead of Al saving some random person, he has to save his best friend and his only lifeline on this journey. And two, you had Roddy McDowell and three... That ending was that was like that. That's not oh boy. That's oh shit. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also interesting to me that the season finales are about Al. Yeah. With the possible exception of Shock Theater, but you can argue that the ending of that episode gives it an Al twist. But the season finales are all about Al, not about Sam. 
And I apologize that I that I've sworn a few times. Uh, if you need to, believe <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, Elite Felice is a really good episode, and he leapt into Lee Harvey Oswald, and that got us into season five, which was the final season of the show. They changed the opening credit music. Yeah, and it pissed me off. No, you and everyone else watching, I think. As I've, as I've said, is a mixed bag. It's not as strong overall as three and four. But when they got it right this year, they got it spectacularly right. You two have both picked the same episodes as your favourite for the season. Um, deservedly so. So we'll come to them so both of you can talk about them in a bit. But my favourite from this year was another one where they mess around with the time travel dynamic. It's Killing Time. Uh, 18th of June, 1958. Sam leaps into of mass murderer Leon Stiles who escapes from the imaging chamber in the future meaning that Al basically has to leave Sam to his own devices while he goes after Stiles in 1999 and it's a wonderfully off concept episode proving that Dean Stockwell could have carried the show on his own had he needed to and it's just a great one, it's a really good episode I like it a lot I, I think the, the hallmark of this season was one let's throw everything at the wall we want to because it's the last season and i think they pretty much knew it was going to be the last season Mm. two there were a lot more stunt shows in this in this season i mean you had dr ruth appearing in an episode which had the anita hill reference that andy or knew what the hell they were talking about in that little scene where uh sam's sitting there telling somebody that he, they don't have to be sexually harassed. And in the background, you see a woman watching and you hear someone yell, come on, Anita. And this mm. was like a year or two after the Anita Hill scandal when they were, when the Congress was vetting Clarence Thomas to be on the Supreme Court. There was this whole scandal of him sexually harassing this woman named Anita Hill. And it's when sexual harassment got prime United States, basically. Uh, one of the few times I've ever seen my father consider somebody from his home state to be an embarrassment uh, during those uh, during those uh, those hearings, but that was the cute little topical reference for the episode, I guess. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a vampire episode. He leaps in. You know, he leaps into somebody who knows Marilyn Monroe. He leaps into Elvis Presley, and like those are the episodes that I like the least from this season. 
humbly enough. Yeah, there's, I didn't mind the leap between the states. That was cute, at mm, least. I, yeah. I mean, the breaking their own rules, though, but it made for yeah. an interesting episode. Well, they 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 got around it because they said it's because he was an ancestor and the DNA was close. It's why he was able to leap. Yeah, but you well, if he can do that with his ancestors, he could go back through the entire length of history. Yeah. And yeah. There's no limiting. I mean, most of his leaps all take place in America. Presumably, at some point, he had ancestry that wasn't there. So he could have leapt to other countries. I mean, they never dealt with that. That would have been, may have been an interesting there, episode. Uh, there was, wasn't there one or two he did leap out of the country? Isn't it one this season where he I leaps can't into remember. the... It's Tehotep. You mentioned yeah. Tehotep. He's not in America in that one, is he? And, and isn't the vampire guy in England? No? No. Oh, so he is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is one where, that may be the boogeyman, where he's in England. Hmm. No, the boogeyman. He is in Massachusetts. He's definitely in Massachusetts because of the Stephen. Because he meets reference. Stephen King, yeah. But hmm. no, yeah, you're right. Then it must be the the vampire one. Because yeah, I, I like. Oh God! There's an well, episode most memorable for the the leap from the previous episode. Oh, with the vamp with the guy, the vampire guy in the imaging yeah. chamber. Yeah, Ruth leaps out. The guy leaps in and goes. <sighs> <laughs> But yeah, the the Elvis Presley one felt very much like a stunt, and the Marilyn Monroe one felt very much like a stunt. And although they handled them well, yeah, yeah, I don't really want them to leap into famous people. The only one I would have bought would have been the the oft mooted leap into Tom Selleck episode, or uh, as Peter David wrote in his "But I Digress" columns, Sam leaping into Vincent from Beauty and the Beast would have been pretty i mean if we could do quantum leap to all the tv shows of the time well you know the sky's but, the limit isn't it but you and know it, the lee harvey oswald episode which was a two which was a two hour episode if i'm remembering correctly when it was originally shown yeah and then split up into two parts uh there was, it was a big deal mainly because belisario knew lee harvey oswald uh had served with him at one point hmm. so there was that connection also caused a pretty big fight between me and my friend ben Totally bought into everything uh, Oliver Stone at the time. Totally bought into everything Oliver Stone said in his film. So the fact that this contradicted that was anathema to him. And we got into a pretty heated exchange outside because, uh, you know, we were in high school and that kind of thing is allowed. I'll what punch, I liked about. I'll punch you back into the left. Back into the left. <laughs> but what I love about this episode mainly is, is uh, I don't know if it was on air or off air, Andy and I were talking about the fact that it would have been neat to see him leaping into different people throughout the course of an episode. You kind of see that in this, even though he's leaping into the same person. Yeah. He's leaping different timelines, different time periods. So I, I really appreciated that. And the fact that he kept losing himself progressively through the episode made it, it's not the best season opener, but it's pretty damn tense. Well, then he does leap into another person at the end. Yes, and the the twist ending that Jackie also died that day without the intervention of Sam. So, mm -hmm. so is the Sergio that's in this episode supposed to be Don Belisario? I believe so. Right. That Absolutely would make sense. makes sense. The leaping of the shrew had Brooke Shields in it. It's pretty much. As the title suggests, it's the taming of the shrew. And Jennifer Aniston oh, cropped right. up nowhere I, to run. I forgot that. That's where they're on the desert island. I forgot about yeah. that one. Okay. 
And if you're going to have a, a thing with a desert island, you got to get Brooke Shields. Uh, I, I really don't <laughs> think anybody should ever touch Taming of the Shrew in television uh, after Moonlighting. No, Moonlighting was the final <laughs> Did it right? <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's why this episode will always come up uh, short for me. Uh, but, like you said, it's not a bad one, but it's, no, you know. No, there there are no... Here, the, the funny thing with Quantum Leap is that I can't really think off the top of my head of a bad episode. I can think of a number of episodes where I kind of tune out. Yeah, you know, there's a couple on. of less good ones. And, that, and, and, and I think, again, that's one of the hallmarks of the series. But, Bill, why don't you uh, talk about the, uh, the awesome, one of the most awesome three episodes of this season? Yes, and that, uh, one of the ones that I picked was Deliver Us From Evil, which is where we revisit Jimmy and his family from the other episode, Jimmy. And Sam leaps back into Jimmy, but things are not going well in the household and Frank and Connie are, are, are kind of at, at ends with each other. And, um, through the course of the episode, while Sam's there, he sees someone leap into Connie and that's where he discovers this whole, which I, I almost wish this could have, they could have gone further with this or introduced it earlier in the series that there's these evil leapers that, um, the other two follow-up episodes that'll come this season, you discover that there's an evil computer called Lothos. <laughs> and um, this other leaper, I believe, Aaliyah, if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. that correctly, and she has a hologram person, uh, Zoe, who is a uh, the actress that plays her, Carolyn Seymour. Carolyn Seymour. She played in an earlier episode um, as, actually, she turns out at the end of it, she was a ghost. You guys remember that? That was yeah. in, what was that season she, one or two? She was also Tina McGee's mother on The Flash. She was. Oh. She was also for people of a certain age. She was the lead in um, uh, Doom, not Doom Watch. Was it Doom Watch? Survivors, the original Survivors in the seventies. Mm. The original, um, the, the entire planet gets wiped out, and there's only a few people left. Now these. I remember the announcement of the evil leaper from the future because that's exactly how NBC sold it was the evil leaper from the future. Didn't care. Loved it. Loved the idea. Uh, I I loved the initial episode uh, because you got the sense that while this woman was bad, she wasn't all bad. Yeah, because Uh, she she Sam was trying to, you know, they he was trying to get her to 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 you know you know you don't have to do this and basically i don't really remember if it's just been so long because i didn't get a chance to rewatch this one what the hold was on her why she was doing what she was doing she was basically forced to do it see we we kind of talked earlier about the fact that they're very ambiguous about the fact of what is leaping sam around uh this was one of those episodes where they got less ambiguous about it because they kind of almost said that it was the devil that was behind everything. And what I got that was never actually said, but what was played out in my head was basically these are people in hell. And as their punishment, they are being forced to go and put wrong what what well, once went right. Right. But I had done a little, I, I had read something about that the that the computer of Lothos was based on someone else's engrams. I was, I was looking up some trivia. Well, you know, it, it continues into later in the in the in the season, Return of the Evil Leaper and Revenge of the Evil Leaper. 
And that's when we get uh, Thames, when, because what happens is everybody switches roles, uh, because Zoe then leaps into another character, and she has to get a new hologram, and that person is called Thames. <laughs> the episode where, where we see them again... Uh, it's in a women's play- prison, that's right. Sorry. Well, the one before that was at a college, where Sam leaps into somebody who's pretending to be a superhero, uh, and the big college bully is played by Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really kind of strange to see Doogie Hauser. It's kind of like when you see uh, Anthony Michael Hall and Edward Scissorhands, and he's all roided out and kind of beating people up, and you're like, "You were the dork in Weird Science and the oh, Breakfast yeah. Club. What the hell happened? Um, what are you on?" But there was a nice little interplay in Return of the Evil Leaper where they knew he was Sam. Uh, before they touched, which is how they would see each other. Oh, that's right. That's that's when it pops up. He doesn't see her leap. That's right. In, and then at the, the end, of evil, leap... she just morphs and turns into another person. And then at the end of the episode, they leap together, and that's when they leap into the women's prison. Uh, Zoe is forced to leap into the warden, and mm-hmm. she has her new guide person. I think this is one of those things that has a really good introductory chapter. The middle chapter is really good. And then the final chapter is like really, the effects aren't as good. Like when you're seeing uh, Aaliyah all lost, it's really bad actually. (laughs) But you like the character. You like the fact, and I, and, and me, I'm always a big proponent of having the alter the, I mean the arch nemesis, where basically, and and this show never was really set up for that, and the fact that they did it in this season was kind of cool. Yes. <laughs> I was just I... letting you two talk, because it was <laughs> fascinating to listen to. Because, yeah, the Evil Leaper episodes are, are very good. The ending is a little bit of a disappointment. They had set up this whole nemesis for Sam. You know, what possibly what he's been fighting against, what, what the, you know, the reasons he could be leaping, and it just kind of, yeah, at the end it kind of just falls flat. Your other two shows, both of you, I think, picked the next one as well, didn't you? Uh, the trilogy, which is feature film quality and length. No, I I did all I did Deliver Us from Evil and the Evil Leaper, but yeah, I was I right. I, I, I would have picked trilogy, but I didn't because I figured somebody else would because it's 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 where uh, it, this is the one where we were talking about earlier where Sam has to bed someone because that someone becomes integral to something in the series. I had missed the first and second part of this first front uh, for whatever reason I didn't watch it. I remember I, I did see part three. So for the very first time about a year ago, I sat down on Netflix with my wife and we watched all three. And in terms of being engaging me as a viewer, in terms of making me care about the characters involved, I, I don't think he. I mean, as much as I like the evil leapers, this to me is like the 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 swan song of the series. Yeah, it's arguably Quantum Leap's finest hour. Mm-hmm. In that absolutely it's three episodes that are all interconnected, following the same characters over a period of is it nearly thirty years? The first episode yeah. is nineteen fifty five. The second episode is nineteen sixty six. That's twenty three years. Seventy eight, and it follows one story in the life of all these characters essentially over that length of time. 
and it's it's it is magnificent the fact that it's all written by the same person and it's all directed by the same person james james jr who was bernie twilliger in hunter and it, it you could stitch these three together as a feature and it would work perfectly yeah i i think it was the fact that at first he's the sheriff protecting his daughter and they did a really good job of selling sam falling in love with abigail in the second episode like i really bought into that relationship to the point that i was actually kind of depressed in part three finding out that she and her husband had divorced because after that whole experience he changed and then you're like oh crap he changed because sam left (laughs) it's all sam's fault but two things about this trilogy that stand out for me one I wanted somebody to hit the woman in the second part that was all about getting that mob together upside the head with like a boat oar or something mm-hmm. like throughout the entire episode. But in part three, we get Sam's daughter. Sammy Joe, right? And, yeah. And, and, yeah. and here's the thing. And, and I don't know if this was a fan thing or if it's something Belisario conjured up. I heard a year or two ago that maybe they were going to bring Quantum Leap back with her. Yeah, well, there's been numerous revival attempts over the years. But just the idea that he has this daughter who's a genius as well, and she eventually starts working for the project, but doesn't know that Sam is her father. So I guess she's not really an art, <laughs> has access to Ziggy all that much, I'm assuming. <laughs> but just Because Ziggy would definitely tell her. <laughs> but the great thing is, is that there's some mystery in this that plays out beautifully through all three parts. So finally, in the end, when you fi- when Meg, I have the creepiest eyes in Hollywood foster, but she's still finally, hot, finally takes the stand and tells what happened. It's like, oh, okay. It was great. It was just beautiful. I love these episodes. Yeah, they've, also, they've got a fantastic cast list. I mean, you've already said Meg Foster, who, for me, was never better than she was in The Six Million Dollar Man, where she was playing an alien. Because her eyes lend to that. Oh. But she was also the, the second Christine Cagney in Cagney and Lacey. But she was Evil Lynn in Masters Union. Yes, she was. <laughs> yeah, she was. <laughs> and um, she was in John Carpenter's They Live. Yep. And Melora Hardin plays Abigail in the last two chapters. She was also on Best of the Best 2, but I'm probably the only one here that's seen that. No, that was uh, with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Eric yeah. Roberts? Yes. I thought it was a really nice touch that the girl who played Abigail in part one plays Sammy Joe in part three. Mm-hmm. Really thought, nice touch there. Yeah, I thought that was that was really class. Kimberly Cullum, I don't know if she's related to John Cullum, but it is, it, it is everything that the show was building to. It's not a show you could have done in the first season. It is a show that it has to have been on the earth for some time before they could tell this story. Because it does address one of the central problems of the series in all the times that sam's there and he's got to help people and they fall in love with him and then he leaps out they've not fallen in love with the person that they will marry Mm -hmm. they've fallen for sam Mm. and this addresses that this addresses that issue you're not the man i fell in love with well you're correct (laughs) yeah quite literally uh, we've already mentioned the 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 other ones leap between the states. Goodbye, Norma Jean. So the final episode of the series was Mirror Image. Uh. It's not quite as baffling as the final episode of The Prisoner. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but it does make you think a great deal about what it's actually trying to say. And the only the only real problem I have with this one, Dean Stockwell's burly in it. Yeah, mm, you know, yeah. For, for being so integral to the series. 
to have him just kind of not be there. I mean, we get to see Gushy again, which is kind of neat. Mm. Uh, and we and, do see uh, uh, Bruce McGill returns, and he was in the first episode. Yeah. yeah. And John Diaquano returns, and Dennis Wolfberg, as we said, Richard Hurd returns. Yeah. Uh, basically, it is a who's who of who's been in the show before. Everybody's as at Sam the bar. leaps into himself at this bar at the end of the universe where the bartender may or may not be God who's telling him all about who he's, why he's here. But the most substantial answer he can give him is sometimes that's just the way it is. I always love Bruce McGill as the guy that knows everything and he won't give you the answer. What yeah, do you, he's, what do you think, is, Sam? He is utterly <laughs> charming in this, uh, but he, he seems to do that in a lot of movies. He's always, he, he's always the guy with the info that he, you know, he's just not going to tell you everything you want to know, and you're just like, well, come, come on, man, throw me a bone. I, I think the the real problem is he never plays any music on his throat, uh, like he would in Animal House. So. <laughs> uh, Hollis Mason is in this episode. The guy that played Hollis Mason in Watchmen was the other Leaper. Oh, right. Oh. Stawpaw, who was apparently Al's great uncle or something, which was kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, it's. Do you two understand this one? Because um, I'm not entirely sure I do. Well, the way the way I kind of saw this is that, like the leap home, this is whoever is leaping Sam around, giving him a quick breather. Because I got to tell you, every time, every time I watch this episode. At the end, when Bruce McGill and, ha- and, 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 and Sam are having that final conversation, when he goes, because they're going to get harder, and Sam goes, they're going to get harder, mm. I choke up. Because it's just like, Jesus, you've put him through everything else, and now you're telling him it's going to get worse. Yeah. Mm. No, on an emotional level, it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's beautifully performed by everyone concerned. I just wasn't entirely sure what the plot was telling me other than, yeah, I'm leaping you around. Okay, go for your life. And it sometimes felt it was being a little bit obtuse for the sake of being confusing. And again, I blame the prisoner for this. I blame the prisoner for an entire generation of writers being able to go, oh, so our endings don't have to make sense. Excellent. (laughs) And it's my understanding is that they actually filmed a leap for this episode. Yes for a sixth season and ultimately the show was cancelled so what we're left with is a rather unsatisfying white text on black background ending where we're just told sam never returned home yeah. but his final leap of the series is he manages to convince al's wife that he's still alive mm-hmm. and don't lose faith and we learn that Al and her have been married for 40 odd years at this point and have 408 children. <laughs> so he's a Kenny Rogers song? Yes. <laughs> he has four daughters, which I thought was deeply ironic and yet satisfying that Al would end up with daughters. Yeah. Because you know he's going to be the, the worst dad in the world when they start dating. Well, yeah, ex military guy? Hell yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, Tell everything you've said. I agree with that. Ultimately, if you're really going to look at it from the viewpoint of wrapping up a television series, it is ultimately not satisfying when you're judging it on that level. I am incredibly biased though. And I can't, (laughs) and I can't really, I can't really, um, 
fault it, you know, if that makes any sense. No, no, that's well, because that's what I'm saying to you. On an emotional level, it yeah. does work. And you and I have discussed this before. I will give plot problems a pass if I am engaged mm-hmm. with the characters and the situation that they're in. And that line, it's going to get harder, is a gut punch, especially seen as we don't get to see it get harder. Mm. And so we're left with this idea that Sam is just still out there somewhere, bouncing around in time, putting right what once went wrong. I mean, and it works, and I do not like it, but it's hard for me to say that it's a complete success as an episode in and of itself, let alone as the final episode of the series. Yeah, it was it was very uh, just like a like you said it was a, it was just a punch. To, what do you mean he never leaves home? You know, yeah, that, that sucks. That, well, that was that was pretty much my grand's reaction to it because she watched Quantum Leap all the way through, and her reaction to the ending was, "What do you mean he never got home?" She just felt really betrayed by that that he didn't. But she was always, "What do you mean David Banner was never cured?" So the fact that these things didn't have an ending that satisfied her was always something that bugged her. But I know this one especially was very oh to her. But it was an awe episode, and on that level, it works beautifully. I just don't think that narratively, it's Belisario's strongest piece of writing. I'll agree with that. Ultimately, they were trying to leave it open, and, and, the, and the number of times they have tried to get this series either into a feature film or off the ground again, I, I, th- I think there's probably a television movie in there somewhere. Did- uh, because the fan base... Uh, for this was, uh, I mean, they they had a name and they were leapers. I mean, it was just they had conventions and you know, you know, it, yeah, it may have been kind of a ripoff of uh, of Star Trek, but at the same time, very, you know, yeah, Firefly has its, you know, people who like want to take a hostage to get the thing back on the air, despite the fact that it's been what over a decade now and all that. And but I don't know, I'd actually fans up against them. <laughs> you know, just pound for pound in terms of what it was, what, what it was, what it was like to have a fandom at the time that this show was on. I mean, not many, sh- not every show got its own conventions. So Did that's you know, kind of amazing to me. Do you guys know about the fan film that was done in 2009? No. Yeah. Uh, I just posted a link up here. I actually went and watched a little bit of it. It's called a leap to die for. It was done. Um, like I said, it's a fan project, and it was basically, it has Sam leaping into a, a gentleman in Paris, and it's trying to save, I didn't watch the whole thing yet, because I just did not have time, and and I've heard it's not that great, but basically Sam leaps in to try to save Princess Diana. Um, like I said, I haven't seen the whole thing, but this is like the and only... And you called it a leap to die for? That's what they called it, not me. It's, oh, a, it's a leap to D-I, not D-I-E. Yes. <laughs> See, the problem with that is it, it is something that the show stayed away from. By and large, you're not going to affect stuff like you can't save Marilyn Monroe and you can't save Diana because we know what happened. Like Mike said, Sci-Fi Channel has tried to reboot this a couple of times without rebooting it, which would be the way I would want to go. Well, but the more it's... and more that time goes on, Dean Stockwell's not getting any younger. I mean, Scott Bakula still looks pretty damn good. Well, for they a guy have... late fifties now. Yeah. Well, they did have their somewhat um, uh, reunion in Enterprise. Yes. So they they both ended up in Enterprise together. 
And you want to talk well, about one of the, the biggest disappointments for me in Enterprise, and I, I do apologize for my dog barking. There's a thunderstorm going on right now, and she's a little freaked out. Uh, one of the one of the things that disappointed me about Enterprise the most was at the time period it was in, it couldn't have a holodeck. <laughs> and I kind of felt that having uh, Sam, uh, Sam Beckett, <laughs> having <laughs> Scott Bakula as your lead and having a holodeck is just kind of begging for that kind of stunt casting. But still, that's just me. Well, um, Dean Stockwell's character did have a like a handset that he was punching stuff up on mm. in the episode that they're in. <laughs> so a silent nod to all the all all the Quantum Leap fans out there. But when the series ended, and I was in such a because I had, like I said I watched the whole thing twice, and I was like, "This is it." What do you mean? This is it? It's over. I need more. So that's when I started to pick up some of the books. And uh, read those, and that's where I, I, I got the books that I had sent you, Andy. Um, I, I know there's more out there. I don't know how many. But I don't want to disappoint you, but I don't remember that those books having a big impact on me. Now, it's been, oh, God, maybe 20, 18 years since I've read those. So, you know, time has dulled my memory. So maybe they're better than I, I remember, but I'm not quite sure. Some of them were good. Some, the, the first one wasn't all that good. It was like one of the more average episodes of the series. Uh, there was one that took place uh, near the Berlin Wall, which was rather tense and I liked a lot. Which that's one of the ones I sent you. Yeah, I've got the wall, Germany, 1961. There was one where Sam leaps into an area where Al is, and it's right around the time where Al was deciding whether or not he was going to join the project, and that's the only thing I really remember about that book. But it was a it was a science fiction type property in the 90s, so of course it had novels. Uh, mm-hmm. Thing for the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, was to kind of carry it on and legitimized fan fiction essentially well just to, to wrap up um i at this point i don't think they should bring it back certainly with bacula and starcraft just leave it as a, a perfectly formed five-year run of however many episodes they did i think did they manage 100 or thereabouts there's 97 i believe right so, so they didn't quite 100 episodes that's a shame i'm sure they could have done three more well, if they had a full season for that first season, but like, you know, they were mid-season replacements, so. Yeah. It's one of those shows both stars and producers and writers and directors all seem to have a certain level of affection still for it. Bacula's never been one of those who shunned the thing that gave him fame, largely due to the fact that he's not stopped working since Quantum Leap went off the earth. But he has always said that he would return to the role if offered the opportunity. Dean Stockwell has never turned back on it or said anything nasty about it. He seems to be very grateful that the series essentially gave him a second lease on life in his career. He'd done a couple of films, Blue Velvet. Having been a child actor, he took a couple of decades off. Uh, but Quantum Leap really gave him a profile again. And since being in this, like Bacula, he's not stopped working, appearing in Battlestar Galactica, amongst other things. Yep, Lois and Clark and, and all the other stuff. He Back was in Lois and Cl- Wait a minute. He was in Lois and Clark? What did he do in he, Lois and Clark? Well, yeah. He was in a later first season episode where there was a rival newspaper that was rigging catastrophes to sell papers. Oh. He was the evil publisher. Oh, okay. Yeah, he Sorry. was the anti Perry White. <laughs> the evil Perry White. So. It ha- and it still has a huge fan base, but I'm I'm kind of like I don't know that this they would have to get two magnificent actors to bury the memory of Bacula and Starkwell 
and forge their own path at the same time. And I don't know that I, I don't want think to they can do that. I, I just no, don't see it. I don't as well. I think it should be something that should be left alone at this point. But Hollywood has no respect, mm. and it pro it is too good of a concept not to do something with. So I would imagine we will see a, a movie reboot. Behind the scenes, Bellasario continued being one of American TV's most prolific producers. He went straight into JAG, which ran for 10 years, into NCIS, which he only executive produced for the first couple of years, if you believe the rumor mill because of disagreements with lead actor Mark Harmon. But again, NCIS is currently in its 10th or 11th. Mm. He and his ex-wife, Deborah Pratt, have both appeared at conventions and said they would have no problem being involved with any potential reinvigoration of Quantum Leap. Personally, I think they should leave it alone. But that's just me. What do you two think? It's good the way it is. I mean, uh, yeah, somebody is going to try to dig it up again. Everything gets dug up like fossils. I, I, I'm of the same opinion. I think this thing exists purely on its own, and uh, any attempt to try to remake it without the people involved being part of it, which I think would, is more problematic now. I mean, I, a couple of years ago, uh, both uh, Bakula and Stockwell were at Dragon Con. Uh, I happened to swing by the celebrity row where they were doing their signings. The line or the queue was extremely long, and it was $40 uh, a piece. And uh, I'm cheap. <laughs> I mean, I love things, but I'm also cheap, and I don't like standing in line very long. So, <laughs> But Bakula looked very animated, and Stockwell looked like he was kind of getting on in age, and he was, you know, was talking with people. But I, I just don't know if it would work now with them stepping back in those roles. I'd, mm-hmm. rather, I'd rather hear commentaries for the episodes. And, yeah, and the uh, yeah. A, re, a, re, a Blu-ray re-release with yeah. more involvement from those two, and Bellasario, and Deborah Pratt, and all the other people involved with the show would probably be much preferable. And, much it, preferable. I mean, to be fair, in the first season DVD, which is the only box set I have, there are, like, little intros from Scott Bakula for every episode. Uh, so that that's kind of neat to have. Because mm. it is one of those, he's asked about it in every interview he gives. You know, and, and if you go on what, you know, his interview and in the captains with William Shatner, this series kind of ended his first marriage. So, you know, just because of the long hours he had to spend on set. Mm. But uh, but no, just the fact that one, the show still holds up. I can I can queue up any episode anytime and just sit there and enjoy myself, uh, especially the one that had Lex Luthor in it. Yeah, Sherman Howard, yeah. <laughs> Which I watched specifically because it had Lex Luthor in it. Two, it exists on its own. You know, it, it exists in its own, like, almost perfect bubble where y- you can enjoy it, it's over, and then you can go re-experience it again in another, you know, like, couple of years or whatever. So I don't, and, and you know, the comic books, which I never read, but there was, like, a nine-issue series from Innovation. Mm, I read uh, all of them. Uh, were they any good? Yeah, they were okay. They, okay. they weren't exceptional. The, the thing you find with a lot of the Quantum Leap stuff is it's very fanish and not necessarily in a good way. You know, all these fan ideas that we have about the show, they do a lot of that. Whereas the TV show was written by professional writers. Donald Bellasario gave an interview once where he said, there are any number of pre-credit sequences that are awesome. But when people come in and pitch those ideas, I say, right, what happens after the credits? You've got to have a story to tell. You can't just leap into somebody cool and then you've got 40 minutes of him just being cool. And that professional producer. And I don't know, I do think an awful lot of today's television writers and producers is written by fans who don't necessarily understand story structure anymore or or a story having a point. Yes, so thank you very much, gentlemen. 
Uh, I hope you listeners enjoy. This is much longer than I normally do, Palace of Glittering Delights for. I only try and keep them to an hour. So this is a special one. But they're all special. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bill Robinson. Do you want to tell everyone where you are available to be talked to or listened to? Uh, yes, you can find me on uh, the Two True Freaks Network. And I am usually uh, with my co-host, Paul Spataro and Scott Gardner on Back to the Bins. And I also can be seen with seen. <laughs> right. <laughs> God, we don't want to see that. I can also be heard on Walking Dead Wednesday, which comes out uh, monthly, usually after Comics Monthly Monday on uh, Two True Freaks as well. And eventually, Gene Hendricks and I are building up some back issues, back issues, again, back episodes of uh, Star Blazers podcast. Uh, When we took over uh, Assistant Editors Month, um, we did uh, a Star Blazers episode instead. So, yep, that's pretty much it. Michael, uh, what you found? <laughs> <laughs> the ladies' restroom. Um, <laughs> that's I, the best place. I am also on the Two True Freaks Network. I am part of Comics Monthly Monday with Scott and Chris. I'm also part of Tales of the JSA with Scott. Uh, I host From Crisis to Crisis with Jeffrey Taylor, where we look at the post-crisis Superman. Find that at FortressofBailey2.com or the Superman homepage. Uh, speaking of the Superman homepage, I'm also part of Radio KAL Live every Monday, 10.30 Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can call in and talk about anything Superman. And uh, I also do a show called Views from the Longbox, which uh, can be found at viewsfromthelongbox.com, which has a permanent semi-regular co-host in the form of Andy Leyland. Oh, I thought you were going to say Shaq. No, he's a semi-regular co-host. You are the permanent semi-regular co-host. <laughs> Those little contractual differences make all the difference, don't they? Thank you very much, gentlemen, for staying up at um, ungodly o'clock to join me for this. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, lovely listener. I know I did. I know we've been on about doing Quantum Leap. Michael and I have talked about Quantum Leap incessantly for years. So it was nice to be able to do this. And Bill, thank you for suggesting it. And I have no idea what the next episode of Palace will be. You get what you're given, pretty much. Oh, boy. (laughs) Andy? Yes, Doctor? Give me what I want, baby. If you weren't my father. Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky Imagine all the people Living for today Imagine there's no country It isn't hard to do Nothing to kill or die for And no religion too Imagine all the people 
it was a jolly jolly nice conversation about quantum leap and i just want to thank dr bill and michael for joining me it was fun i normally try and keep these things down to an hour with palace but i do want to empty the email sack so i'm just going to tag these at the end here quite obviously told you this solo podcasting thing was hard tim elliott got in touch first of all and gave a donation which was very very kind of him scott garner passed that on to me and he said uh, keep up the good work tim elliott did so if you want to give us a donation feel free you know i'm all about giving us money i think that's great chris franklin emailed in first of all what is it with you and clones which related to the attack of the clones episode of palace editor Chris says, I think someone needs to have a clone intervention. Stop obsessing about clones. Is it possible you're a clone and are subconsciously crying out for help? Did you throw your original body down a smokestack? If I know England from TV and movies, it's full of smokestacks. Well, yes, it is. In that same way that America is full of those water things that you see on the top of roofs in Steve Ditko, Spider-Man comics. Chris is, of course, relating, though, to my other show, Hey Kids Comics, where we recently covered the Spider-Man clone saga from the 1970s. Chris continues, I enjoyed your episode on Attack of the Clones. Even for me, it's the lost prequel film since I missed it in the theatres. I think I saw it in its entirety after I watched Sith. I've only seen it all the way through that one time. I do recall thinking Anakin's portrayal made Darth Vader seem to be an angry man-child in a really impressive suit of armour. This thought carries over to Sith, and again, as portrayed, I don't see why Obi-Wan or Padme care for this guy that much. His murder of the Sand People and Padme's reaction really rang false in any sense. The whole death of Shmi and Anakin seeking revenge could have been a true defining moment for Anakin, and telegraphed his change to Vader beautifully, but ultimately it just falls flat. I agree that the Fets don't live up to the hype. They look cool, but that's about it. As presented in the films, the political themes are very muddy and hard to figure out. I think they have much to do with why the prequels are maligned by many as they are. They take up a huge amount of screen time, but the ideas aren't presented in a very coherent manner. Yeah, this goes back to something... I'm just going to interrupt Chris's email here. This goes back to something Matt Stover said when he was novelising Sith. If you had a question... 
you called up George Lucas and he could answer it. He had all of this in his head and all of Palpatine's political machinations. He had it all mapped out and did know how it all worked and what he was doing. But ultimately, I think I have to agree with Chris here that it doesn't come across in the films as well as it perhaps could. You really do have to take a step back from it and look at all three of the prequel movies and even into Star Wars where we get the one line of dialogue about the Emperor dissolving the Senate to actually have a look at how well plotted Palpatine's plan was and it's certainly something that I think the EU has really been able to expand upon and and really make a much better job of describing exactly what Palpatine's plans was as depicted in the film it does in all of the films, it does kind of seem like rather loosey-goosey. It's only, like say, when you sit back and look at the big picture, you realise how clever he was in what he's planned. I wish George could have gotten that across in a better way in the actual movies than he did. And again, I don't know if this is a case of he had all these ideas and all this backstory in his head, but he never really sat down, despite what he may say in interviews, he never really sat down and really mapped it all out properly and then wrote a story about it. It seemed to me like he had it in his head and he spewed the scripts for the prequels onto paper, but he didn't have a story editor to look at what he was doing. And I think maybe if he had written it all down and then worked a plot out of it or a script out of it with somebody who was a better script writer, then I think the prequels would be better received than they are. Chris continues. So Christopher Lee and Ewan McGregor do make Attack of the Clones. Lee being Count is obviously a call back to his role as Dracula, which I'm a huge fan of. It was great to see him own these young heroes as he did. So are you going to defend the Phantom Menace next? What about the Star Wars Holiday Special? There's your Christmas episode. You're welcome, Chris. Um, Well, first of all, Scott and Chris of this here network, the titular Two True Freaks did a Star Wars Holiday Special episode, which I pretty much think, you know, you can't really beat. They said everything I really think about that. I've only ever seen it once. I don't think I managed to get all the way through it. I only like the Boba Fett cartoon, so I'm not really going to put myself through that torture for a Christmas episode. But all that does raise the interesting point that um, not everything to do with the classic trilogy was really all that good. Defending the Phantom Menace, you know, there's a part of me that is intrigued by that idea. The idea of rereading the novel like I did for Clones and Sith and re-watching the movie and actually seeing if if I can defend it. I mean, I said when I did 2 and 3, Menace is my least favourite of the movies, although I think it has good bits. That That's actually interesting. And, you know, if the muse so takes me, I may do that. Because the thing with this is I don't have anything planned out. I just do stuff as I feel like talking about it. So, it is intriguing and it is provocative. And it it does appeal to the the iconoclast in me to want to defend the Phantom Menace. Can you defend the indefensible? I don't know. I'm interested in it. Whether or not it will happen anytime soon, I don't know. It would have to be something that, you know, I woke up in the morning and suddenly went, right, I feel like doing that today. Because um, I would have to read the book as well. Uh, Chris also emailed about the Battlestar Galactica commentary, which I recently released, which he said he never watched. Um, Well, he had vague memories of the series, but uh, I have to assume he had some kind of deprived childhood. He does, however, 
take issue with the fact that I did not know who Rick Springfield was. Well, that's not true. I didn't know who he was. It was in an episode of The Incredible Hulk where he played Gerald McCraney's brother. Now, that's the extent of my knowledge of Rick Springfield. Apparently, he was an uh, a pop star in the early to mid-70s and played Dr. Noah Drake on General Hospital. His biggest hit was apparently Jessie's Girl. I say this only because I have no idea about any of this, but I presume most of my audience are sat there going, yeah, how can you not know Rick Springfield? He also played Christopher Chance in the very short-lived 90s DC Comics version of The Human Target by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeer, who also produced The Flash, and he was the original Nick Knight from Forever Night. He was replaced in the series by, um, what was his name, Geraint Van Davis or something? Geraint Wynn Davis or something like that? I watched a couple of episodes of Forever Night, but it never really... Uh, Never really appealed to me that much. Chrissy marvels at the fact that he knows so much about Rick Springfield, but he blames his sister for that, which, you know, I, I think is just a, an excuse. I think Chris probably had Jesse's girl on constant rotation when he was a teenager. He does end with saying, it was always a pleasure to hear your missus on the show, as she brings a nice level of snark to calm the nerd levels down. <laughs> well, as, as somebody who does a podcast with his wife, Chris, you should be well aware of that feeling. Luke Giaconetti also emailed in the lost 13th episode of Palace or something like that, despite it not being the 13th. I should have released it as the 13th episode. I missed a trick there, didn't I? Luke begins, Imperious Leyland, I really enjoyed your commentary on the theatrical version of Battlestar Galactica on Blu-ray. You know me, I love old school Galactica. I have the original DVD release which used the theatrical poster as the cover art. Oddly, the art shows headshots of pretty much all the main characters, some Centurions, a Viper, a Raider and a Baster, but not the Galactica itself. Very strange. I myself recently reread the novelization and then rewatched the film. One of the major departures of the novel is the alien as opposed to robotic nature of the Cylons. They are specifically described as cyborgs, with the Cylon society being stratified by the number of brains one has. Imperial's leader has three brains. The main reason why the Cylons became robots in the film and subsequent series was network TV broadcast stances and practices, which limited how many people could be shown getting killed in an hour of television. Robots had no such restrictions, so they could kill them with impunity. Given that, it is clear watching the film that the Cylons were always intended to be cybernetic aliens, which goes a long way to explaining not only why the Imperious leader looks the way he does, but also why the Centurions are different heights, react to pain, and so forth. The idea of the race of machines fighting humanity worked great in the Reimagined series, but I like this idea of an alien alliance hunting down mankind because it lines up better with how the Cylons actually behave in the original series. Anyway, the film holds up pretty well, considering its telefilm origins. The story is good, but padded and needs about 15 or so minutes cut out, especially from the third act on Carillon. The action sequences are fun, with real nice special effects, but again, they betray their TV origins with frequent stock footage. Still, it's an enjoyable evening's diversion, hearkening back to a more innocent time in science fiction when Starbuck and Cassiopeia snuggling up in the launch tube was risque. I do recommend the novel, as it gives a lot of insight into the Cylons and the society that we never got in the show. Pretty neat. Uh, I have read Richard, it's not Richard, is it? It's Robert Thurston, isn't it? Robert Thurston and Glenn Larson, although I think the Glenn Larson tag is just contractual, novel of Galactica many times. I read all of those original Galactica novels up to, I think the last one I read was called Surrender the Galactica, again by Robert Thurston, when they, they started doing original stories rather than just adapting the episodes, which I think the first 10 or 11 or so were. They only ever adapted one episode of Galactica 80. Which I think is a shame, because I would have liked to have, have seen them adapt at least The Return of Starbuck, because I think they could have expanded on that story a great deal. 
But yeah, yeah, the, the novel, I really enjoyed the Galactica novel. By your command ends Luke. Well, thank you very much, Luke and Chris, for emailing in. Thank you again, Tim, for your contribution. Thank you to Scott for passing along the note that we got a contribution. That was, uh, that was a nice surprise. Next time on an all-new episode of Palace of Glittering Delights, I'm currently working on my V retrospective, where I'll be looking at the TV miniseries and the series that followed. No release date is yet planned. Obviously, that has to fit in and around me doing other stuff, but that's what makes this one fun. I can release it whenever I want. There's no set date to it. If you wish to email me about these two episodes, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address that I can currently be reached on. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I'm going to say I know I did, and uh, I'll be back with my V retrospective very soon. Take care. Bye-bye.